Hello and welcome to another episode of GDPR Now, our podcast dedicated to all things related to data privacy and security with all sorts of technology in between. So your host today is me, Karen Heaton, owner of Data Protection for Business, recording from my home office in Southwest London. In this episode today, we're going to talk about how we can make artificial intelligence regulation strategic for businesses. This is obviously a growing and changing and very fast moving topic area. So I am delighted to introduce today Aisha Peyoti, who is the co-founder and managing partner of Reg Horizon. Reg Horizon are based in Switzerland and Aisha has over 20 years of experience in the private sector, including with the United Nations, Prior to creating Red Horizon, Aisha was a senior business development and public affairs executive within a large multinational where she built and led cross-functional teams and projects spanning diverse geographies, including Europe, Middle East, Africa and Asia. So welcome, Aisha. We're in very safe hands today. Great. Lovely to be with you, Karen. Thank you for the invitation. You're very welcome. Would you like to tell us a bit about Red Horizon, please? Absolutely. My pleasure. So uh, Red Horizon is a Swiss-based consulting firm. Our focus really is to help build trust in emerging technologies through promoting policy solutions and also by facilitating dialogue between governments, academia, businesses and civil society. And as you know, Karen, I mean, as societal expectations are evolving, specifically around the AI, there's lack of clear global rules, as well as slow pace of sort of developments in the area of uh, AI policy. This is viewed as, in fact, posing a major challenge to businesses, but also to consumers worldwide. So, uh, in fact, a few years ago, we realized that there was really a need to raise awareness specifically on this topic and to facilitate a multi-stakeholder dialogue. So whilst as, as Red Horizon, we're dealing with a much larger scope, we are specifically in these days very much focusing on AI and AI policy developments. And in fact, in 2019, we partnered with ETH Zurich, uh, which is one of the two federal institutes of technologies here in Switzerland. So we partnered with the Center for Law and Economics, essentially to create an unbiased platform uh, where we could have multi-stakeholder discussions amongst policymakers, academia, business and society, really focusing on challenges that AI technologies are posing, but also exploring some of the relevant policy solutions that we can have to address them. This is more or less what, we, what I'm working on these days. Well, it's quite involved because obviously it's a very fast moving area, isn't it? Absolutely. And hard to coordinate globally, um, even hard to coordinate you know, within the EU or nationally. And I noticed that you had a conference recently and in the last couple of weeks to try and bring all these stakeholders together and continue to move this dialogue forward. Absolutely. Well, thank you to bring that up because, you know, it was, um, it was really, really amazing because this was, in fact, the second of our global conferences on AI policy. The first one took place a year ago. And this year round, it was incredible to see the interest in the topic. So we, in fact, had basically panelists from uh, over 50 panelists from across the globe participated. And then in terms of those that were attending, I was really happy to see we had over 65 countries, people attending. And it was really a great split between 
private sector, academia, but also NGOs, uh, you know, civil society and, and experts. So, so it went really, really well. And we really focused into this topic. And I'm glad that we can talk a little bit about it as well in this podcast. Yeah, because I think there were probably some very good takeaways that you had from the conference. Obviously, we can build those into our discussion today. And, you know, certainly the current problem area and the whole regulatory environment is is a bit of a hot topic for businesses, isn't it? Because there's a lot of regulation going on out there. We've gone through a whole pandemic where businesses have struggled to survive. We're starting to come out the other end of it now. And we're now saying, okay, what are our plans now for innovation and moving forward and generating growth? Well, actually, now we need to think about what constraints we need to work in around innovation. So why is having the right environment important for business and how can we make it not be detrimental to their growth and and innovation? Well, thanks for bringing that up. Um, I, I really, really do think, in fact, before we go into deeper into what really needs to be done, as you rightfully ask, what, why is it that it is important to have the re- right regulatory framework? And I think it's just to, to remind ourselves. So as a business, obviously, when we're looking at regulation, it's creating stability, it's creating predictability. So if I am a business leader, I'm looking at my strategic planning for the next three to five years, I'd like to know what the regulatory environment is going to be looking like. Of course, that's going to help me to contain my risks, manage my reputation, and essentially, Even from a business process complexity point of view and from your cost management point of view, having sort of some sort of global rules or rules. If if I am somebody, a company that is operating outside of national borders, it becomes very important for me. Right. So this is key. You know, a classic uh, thing people say about regulation, it's very good to create a level playing field. But, you know, if you go a little bit deeper into this, I think what is also quite interesting to notice that, yes, uh, that is important, but potentially regulation can also create a competitive advantage for a company or even a competitive disadvantage. And I think here, uh, again, coming back to the conference, uh, we, you know, we had this incredible uh, study that was shared in our conference where they looked at from ETH Zurich. And they were showing that, in fact, by having the GDPR, as which you know very well, the actual implementation of GDPR led to a mar- you know, increase in market concentration at the expense of smaller players. So, you know, because of the burden for compliance, what essentially happened was that, you know, some of the smaller players couldn't really compete. So here I'm talking about, yes, it can create an advantage, but also a disadvantage. So we've got to be really wary of what's going on. And the last point would be about building trust. Regulation really is a way to build trust in your product and to help with its adoption, adoption of your technology. And, you know, you talk about COVID and we saw recently an example in Switzerland where you had an AI-driven tracing application that the Swiss government put in place. And the aim was, of course, to help contain the pandemic. But people were so worried about their private data that nobody adopted it irrespective and therefore didn't work so again it's very important to have the right rules in place and trust around those rules in order for us to have adoption of technology that's totally correct and you know i spend quite a lot of my podcasts looking for ways to ease the burden for small and medium-sized enterprises and startups because regulations can have a disproportionate impact on on those organizations So, yeah, so our current mindset 
then is, we've talked about this previously, regulation as a burden as opposed to as an opportunity. And why really is this more so, or is it more so, with artificial intelligence in particular? I mean, the, the example you gave about the tracking app in Switzerland, when we did a number of podcasts on track and trace apps on the show, and you know, we highlighted some adoption issues, if you want to call them, from the public. But what about our mentality around regulation as a burden? Yeah, you're very right. There is this mentality and this mentality, I would say it is a little bit to do with historically what's been happening, you know, so if you look at well-developed sectors, classic industries, you know, within an economy, regulation is something that normally exists. So whether you are an established business or you're a startup, you really, all you need to do is to ensure that you're complying with that regulation. And which entails, of course, having some processes and resources put in place um, that you need to dedicate. But generally, it's a cost center for you. And that's the mindset. So first time, you know, you've got lawyers in, but they're really looking at compliance and making sure you don't do anything wrong based on what the current regulatory landscape is. What I argue really is that with the new technologies and with this new digital revelation that we are living today, there is, in fact, a very rare opportunity And the rare opportunity is that we don't have time to go into all the risks that AI poses and all. But one thing is clear, there is obviously debate around creating some new laws around this technology. And in case, even if you're not creating the new legislation, you're actually adapting the current one. And and you're looking at ways to basically complement whatever we have to make sure that we have the right future. And this is happening now. So in the area of AI, for example, that we are discussing today, on the one hand, you have the statistic which says, well, you've got, you know, there was a recent survey in the US which says 86% of major US corporations predict that artificial intelligence will become a mainstream technology in their company this year. So this was something that was quoted in our conference from the US commissioner. At the same time, the laws are not there, but they are being created. So you have this rare opportunity to basically participate in that. And as you know, for the laws, and and I think you've had a a program on that, I was just on, on the EU AI draft act. Yeah, Ben Muller. You have the Council of Europe, which is representing 47 member states that have recently announced that they will be negotiating a global treaty on AI. You've got calls in the EU for a coherent rules around AI, and, and they're looking at it now, basically, Biden administration to say, let's look at it at a federal level as well, right, with the FTC and the EEOC working on that. And at the same time, you had the UN recently, I don't know if you saw that, Karen, but they, the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights recently made a, a statement saying we need a moratorium on the use of artificial intelligence technology that poses risks to human rights, including face scanning and all that. So, so you have those sort of these you know, calls for bans, and at the same time, you have sort of calls for rules and something's on the table. So I see there's an opportunity. If I am a CEO or I am a business leader, I actually can ask myself this very rare question, which is to say, okay, I have my business. I have my objectives. I have my strategy. What kind of regulatory environment will support that? And you can actually ask that question and say, oh, well, is there something that I can do to, in fact, participate in that process? So that's where I think we have this opportunity. And I think it's just exciting times. So there's an opportunity out there. 
CEOs of large organizations and medium-sized organizations totally understand. They probably got the resources and the, the network and the fact that those opportunities to shape regulation are out there, they, they will know that. But what about my favorite topic? What about our startups and our SMEs? How would they even know about that or how to get involved or whether they're going to be listened to? How can they go and feel as though they're going to be actively involved in A, understanding what's being proposed and B, helping to contribute to it? Well, but that is the heart of the problem, isn't it? Because, yes, you have, as you rightfully say, you've got the big multinationals or the big companies. Of course, it's very important for them. They have the funding. They have big corporate affairs and regulatory affairs and government affairs departments looking at this. And these are just, the, let's say, the adopters or users of technology. Of course, then you have the creators. And if you talk about the big tech, I mean, their, their voice in Brussels and all around is very heavy, and we know that. But essentially, what you do find is SMEs and startups, when when you really look at how involved are they, how aware are they, the answer really comes back as saying not very much. And the question you then say is, but why is that? And at the same time, you know, we talk about it's a great opportunity. They, they you know, it can, they can shape their, but there, in my opinion, there are really two main reasons for it, right? So first of all, is a lack of focus on this particular topic, because, you know, lack of focus on future regulatory developments, just in general, right? As a startup or as a smaller company, you're focusing on, you know, basically what is out there, you've got to do your product, you've got to do your sales, you've got to do your marketing. You are not necessarily looking at, oh, how can I really engage in strategic, you know, discussions around the future of regulation? So that's just its effect. The next one, which I think is the most important, and it's the biggest factor, and we have to spend really some time into what we can do to overcome it, is the lack of resources. So doing all of that takes time, it takes money, it takes energy. And if you are small, traditionally, you get your funding also from venture capital. They are not allocating money for active engagement and policy. They are putting money on saying, okay, here's even a little bit you can have to make sure you comply and you, know, you manage your risk. So therefore, this for me is the real key. And who will pay if I want to engage? And where will the money and time come from? And that's the real challenge for, for small companies, I think. So for smaller companies and startups to get support, perhaps, as you're suggesting, you know, from other stakeholders of influence, investors and shareholders, they may be easier to target and convince and, and maybe help them if they're, if they're investing in organizations that are experts in the AI space, would it not be beneficial for them to be on board with the regulatory um, framework as well. I think it is, Karen. I think it is going to be very effective. But, you know, I'm going to now maybe bring back to what we said about our recent policy conference that we had, you know, because one of the things we even, in fact, had, uh, we had a panel specifically looking at SMEs and startups and what is going on in that field and what do they need. And one of the things which, you know, I'll just share with you some of maybe the takeaways uh, in terms of what are they thinking? So my, 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 and, you know, we usually run multi-stakeholder panels, which really truly means that you are a startup or an SME and you have the right to sit next to Basically, you know, in this case, they were the head of the STOA committee at the European Parliament is really looking at science and technology or the basic, you know, head of the AIDA, which is looking at, you know, artificial intelligence specifically. And you can share what it is that you want, right? 
So it was a forum to do that. And what came out on this particular topic was that, you know, first of all, there was this discussion because, of course, you draw a parallel with GDPR, which was another one of those big, you know, legislations that came out, the regulation, which was kind of had this Brussels effect, right? So it, it was felt through in, in other parts of the world, which is essentially very much also the intention of the EU AI Act. And one of the things was, well, actually in the USA, it was interesting to see that small companies, in fact, lost their vendor contracts, you know, with the bigger ones, because they were not aware that they had to comply even with GDPR or they didn't have the processes in place. So that was one thing. When you look at startups, they felt, and this was through the discussions, again, I'm just like, you know, sharing with you some of the takeaways was that the jury is still out, right? So while the EU AI Act has has this, you know, other part of it, which is sort of looking at saying, we're going to support SMEs and startups, we'll give them testing and funding and sandboxes and pilots. Essentially, the startups don't feel that that's enough. And they feel that it's going to actually inhibit their growth, at least in the EU. So they are feeling that, you know, this is something which is, the third thing is, that came out very strongly was that there isn't today, they basically don't even know most of the startup and the, and the SME community that they can participate. Yeah, exactly. There is this big, you know, and their, their mindset really is, okay, well, you know what, uh, the regulator, let's just keep them away and, you know, everything will be okay. But in this case, maybe it won't be okay. So they have to be thinking about that. And they want, actually, they want governments to help. They want governments to facilitate. They want their venture capitalist firms to be aware of this topic. So clearly, they have a lot to say. So this was one takeaway. I can continue if you want. Certainly from the startups and the SME perspective, yes, because we can then talk about actually what is out there today for them as opposed to how they can shape the future. And it's, but it's really important to see, to understand how they see this, their landscape now. Exactly. And coming back now, Karen, to what you talk about venture capital, right? So this point was also discussed to say, well, you know, the money, but at the same time, the money. So, so what came out, and I think it's a very important point, which I'd love to highlight is that ethics by design actually makes good business sense. It makes good business sense for big companies, but also smaller companies. And venture capitalists, and we had a few inputs there, are looking at companies that can manage their regulatory risks and manage them proactively, right? So whilst maybe, yes, classically, they are not like giving money right now, but the fact is they are looking at regulatory risk and they are looking at, okay, are you going to be able to manage that? Do you have something in place? So in fact, there is an opportunity again here for startups and smaller companies to say, well, I can actually, maybe if I can fold that into my pitch, I can signal it as maybe a competitive advantage. Maybe I can share that there will be more adoption because here I am. And then again, another thing which came out was that if you are small, you're still lean, you can still incorporate things inside your, your business processes and also. So this is something you certainly can do. But on the other hand, I have to be very open. If, if When I was looking at people, venture capitalists to come in and talk on this topic, frankly, uh, Karen, I didn't find many. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> it's not top of mind now, but I think it should be. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess where it is important um, for from a profitability perspective, because startups need to be able to obviously have continued growth and profit generation but if they are breaching regulations then they're running 
a significant risk that at some point they're going to have to pay for that. However, the payment is, whether it's in reputational perspective or whether it's a financial perspective or actually a, a regulator saying to them, you've got to cease processing or operating while you sort your stuff out. All of that costs money. So it's non-trivial, but I think your point around you couldn't find many to come to the conference because it was an interesting one. Maybe I wasn't looking hard enough. I don't know. <laughs> I'll do it next time. <laughs> so I, I guess and just to close on that topic, I think the other interesting thing you just said there is ethics by design, but I would slightly challenge that because we use the word ethics, but actually is that interchangeable with legal? Make legal and compliant by design because is it about ethics or is ethics about making sure you comply with the regulations of, of the land? Because quite often, it, certainly in the data protection space, if you're breaching the regulations, you're doing something which appears unethical. It's an interesting word and I'd quite just like to highlight that because it feels like it's ethics is its own set of standards that is a little bit divorced from the laws and the regulations of, of the land. Right. But I think here it's a very, very important point, but I think it's very subtle here as well. So so when you talk about regulation by design or, or the fact is that you're assuming that there is regulation, right? Today in AI, right? So if I'm somebody who's coming up with a product, I don't actually have that luxury. So, but I do know if I am aware of where the regulation is going, if I'm aware of the big principles around, if I am tapped into the soft law that is basically already out there, the guidance which is out there around there, I and I know the proposals which are up on the table that will be discussed, I am very well informed and I can therefore, again, ethically think about my business and say, okay, I do need to prepare something which is going to be sustainable over the long term. I know what are, what the societal expectations are through basically all these experts working on it, regulatory proposals I see and all the guidance that I have got in front of me. And then that's a little bit what I mean by the ethical by design, because regulation, as you know, and that's the big pacing problem thing that everybody discussed, that by the time it actually comes and, you know, it's there, you know, things are somewhere else. And that will bring us a bit to the soft law, basically, as well. But, you know, that's maybe something we discuss separately. But there is a role of all of that to be aware of that and how that can be actually moving forward and what businesses can do. But maybe we discuss this in a bit. Yeah, so let's now consider to look at what's available today. So obviously it's really important where organizations and businesses can to understand you know, the roadmap for the regulations and where they're going. But let's just consider what we've got out there today. So my slightly limited but growing experience in, in businesses using AI or, or tech startups is that actually data protection regulations go quite far in determining or laying out what you can and can't do fundamentally. Certainly in what I'm seeing in the UK, for example, is that you know the Information Commissioner's Office has produced some really useful guidance for businesses. So what they haven't done at this point is say, well, we're going to bring in a, a separate AI law. What they have said is actually here is guidance and resources to help you do the best you can on the artificial intelligence Front. And so I would encourage anyone to go on their website. I mean, there's they've got a document on explaining decisions made with AI, guidance on AI and data protection. 
and they've also got a very comprehensive pre-populated risk assessment template that I've actually used with the client to run through all the potential AI-based risks and allow an organization to map themselves against those potential risks. And they're really useful documents. And the other thing I've seen in the UK, and I'd be interested for your opinion of there's some similar happening in Switzerland, is there's at the moment, there's this um, open life data framework consultation happening. And that is about trying to use data in a safe and well-organized way to better society's health outcomes. It's a wide remit. It's up and running and it's happening. And, you know, I've heard quite a few people talk about this push to be able to use medical data in a better way to advance and improve health outcomes and health diagnoses. So I don't know what are you seeing sort of similar comments or is there anything in that area coming out? No, very much. You know, I have a couple of reflections on this one. So the first one is that, you know, whilst we're talking about these laws and we talk, you, you know, you of course know about the EU AI Act and binding regulations coming from the Council of Europe and all that. What is very important is that there is an inherent tension actually, in these discussions, you know, and this is not just, you know, within the different sectors of society, but also on a geopolitical front. So there is the one camp that actually believes that, you know, we should have new laws, you know, we need new laws across for AI, and we need to make them and they need to be. But there is another camp that says, well, actually, we have a lot out there already. It's a matter of just enforcing it, and maybe complementing it with certain sort of soft law you know, instruments. And by soft law, what I'm talking about is like private standards or guidelines or best practices. Codes of conduct, perhaps. Now, this, of course, exists not only, as I said, um, you know, if you look geopolitically, maybe US and the UK and Switzerland are thinking in a certain way, but maybe EU is different. And this is something that did come out very clearly also in our conference. But on the other hand, Karen, one another thing which I'd like to share, which was also this fascinating study that was shared by University of Arizona, in fact, which has become sort of, you know, it's, it's now doing its rounds around the world. It is basically, they looked at about 634 soft law instruments, right, that exist around the world. And they actually realized that they were based on about 150 principles. And this is for AI. Right. Oh, okay. And then they classified the text uh, within, and they realized there were like ninety themes, you know, on on basic. And one thing which came out was actually, you think that soft law is about self-regulation and it's mainly coming from private sector, but no. In fact, thirty-six percent of these soft law instruments were proposed by governments, as you say. So it's about guidelines, it's about governments coming with. But then. What really was key and a little bit sad to see was that 70% of these basically had no enforcement mechanisms. So they were not implemented. And, you know, it's, an, it's a fascinating study because it gives you a bit of an understanding of why this debate is there and, and why people are sitting in certain places. And it, essentially, the thing is, and that erodes the trust, right? It erodes the trust even within these instruments. So it's sort of like, okay, you have this guideline now, you have all of these, uh, you know, uh, principles that have been given to you, but if you don't really going to use them, 70% of them, then okay, you know, this doesn't help. 
The other thing which I would mention here, because you talked about risk assessment, and I'm sure you are aware also of the OECD's observatory. OECD is really playing a one major role in basically sharing best practices around AI. And they recently came with this thing called the AI index, which basically allows you to assess risk because it, and it's looking at different criteria, so not only the development, but also the use of the technology for AI. And based on that, it's actually geared towards regulators, but you as a company can you do it as well. And we had OECD at our conference as well. And we, you know, one of the statistics that came out, which actually I kind of kept, was saying 50% of basically, you know, they, they had a survey recently that was conducted. And what they found out was that 50% of the respondents were actually not using these tools. So, you know, you sort of say, why is that? And that brings us back to the lack of awareness. That brings us back to sort of saying so much more needs to be done to help, to make sure that there is things out there which can be done and used, but we need people to be aware of them and to actually then use them. And maybe if that is happening, then maybe we don't need too many binding regulations, right? Yes, correct. So that is a little bit the, you know, just came to me while you were speaking of my reflection. Perhaps we can put a link to that index in the show notes. It's a new one as well. And it came out uh, about, about yeah, six, seven months ago. And I'm fascinating. That one, and I think the study from Arizona uh, State University, because that one is also open for all. And I think it is in a great place where, you know, if you are a company and you're thinking of saying, okay, I need to come up with some, where, where do I go? You go there and you can look through by theme, you can look through by principle, you can look through and you can either just copy paste it, right? And say, well, this, or you can, you know, mix and use and take some parts of it to build something for yourself, which again can help you to be more sort of, you know, uh, I would say it's, it's a cheap way, but a good way for you to be, as we said, uh, you know, ethically uh, okay with your development of your products. And I think certainly trying as best you can in the beginning to build something in a way that isn't going to give you lots of compliance problems or unhappy consumers down the line, is it's got to be the best way forward, right? As a business, you can always decide whether you want to follow or not, but at least you're making that decision. You've got the information, you read it, you understand, and then you decide how you're going to act off the base of it. So, um, right. Well, we've talked a bit about the regulatory from a high level, the regulatory framework and why it's important for businesses and how it impacts SMEs and startups and some of the resources they've got. Is there any other points that you think you might want to bring up from a societal perspective? Yeah, I think for me, again, you know, I was reflecting a little bit on the problem uh, <laughs> before talking to you, but also a little bit before, because I'm thinking, okay, if I put myself in the shoes of, uh, you know, a small company and I see all this happening and yes, I agree that this is something, you know, I should be doing, but then I, I have this constraint. I don't have the money. And what is it that I can do if I was basically the CEO of a short, you know, small startup or an SME? So first of all, I'll, I'll share a couple of things I think that can be done. And I was putting the hat which says, I don't need to spend too much money. So how, what can I actually do without spending so much money, but still I can basically be aligning myself to what we're talking about, right? And then the second part would be then to say, okay, what do I want the rest of society to do? So if we split these two, right? And we say, let's start with the first one. So the first one would be, okay, I've, um, you know, first and foremost, I think prioritizing this topic as a business leader 
is very important. So we need to make sure that this is something which is part of the strategic planning discussions, the discussions within your management team, uh, and you need to link it to your business objectives, right? Because of course, as we said, you know, it's about ensuring your license to operate. It's about minimizing your compliance burden. It's about building certainty. So this for me is key and doesn't cost very much, right? The second thing that I think we can do as small business leaders is really to coordinate the effort on, on, on basically this topic with the maximum number of external stakeholders, right? So this I, I by this I mean even regulators, even academia, right? Now you don't necessarily need to do it by having you know hundred consultants and paying them to basically go and engage on your behalf, but you can actually create a culture of dialogue, right? Internally, but also externally. As we said, we found out that there is it doesn't exist. And you can use platforms that already exist. So there are associations that exist. There are conferences, for example, such as the one we have where you have the possibility and this does two things it allows you to first follow what's going on but really directly also give input okay into the process into what you think and again this will take maybe a couple of hours of your time but it's not you know going to be costing you very much and you can offer as well i believe it to to you know strengthen this relationship and this dialogue you can help basically even regulators to test the practicality of some of the policies that they are making they're proposing and you have basically the expertise right you can in fact even come up with sharing innovative solutions and say well you know let's work together and join projects and centers of excellence which i believe are something that governments are doing but need to do maybe more of so you if you part now all of this doesn't cost you much right the, another thing is, of course, we talked a bit about this, but acting before the regulation is mandating, it is, of course, making business sense. So something like having like, ethicists already in your design teams, you know, you don't need big ones. Either, but maybe somebody like it could be if I'm very small, I'd, I'd actually bring in a friend who works on this and say, hey, by the way, what do you think? You know, is this something that's making sense? And of course, if you do have a bit of resources to have some advisory bodies, external advisory bodies who can, in fact, review and provide some advice. So these are things that I think you can do without necessarily spending too much money, but you are kind of up to speed and you kind of are already there. I would also suggest one more thing, which is ask for resources. If you don't ask, you will not get. Okay. So ask the governments. Ask the resources. Yes, ask the governments and we'll come to the governments, but even venture capitals. Why can you not say, if you make a good business case, you say, okay, I need to increase my awareness and I think it will make business sense. It's going to help me to manage my risk. Can I have percentage of small percentage of my VC funding? which can go to policy engagement, right? I don't know, ask for it. You will get it or not? Because as I said, it will also raise awareness of the venture capitalists on this thing, right? So this is what I would say you can do more if you were a business leader in a smaller, you know, and you didn't have the resources. And then of course is the next step is what do we need as a society, right? So what else do you need from other players? Because that's something that, you know, and there I do believe there is a role for governments, for academia, for experts. And yeah, I can talk about that if that's what you want to discuss now. Well, I think it's useful to be able to, you know, highlight and summarize what they can do as opposed to just saying it's a burden and, you know, that's really terrible and everything. Um, so that's really helpful in being able to 
list out for listeners and hopefully for innovators the sorts of areas that are available and are out there. I mean, as you were just talking there, I was thinking, I want, I wonder if I could get find a, a venture capitalist to come on the show and <laughs> have a chat with one of them and hear their perspective. Because obviously I think they're always about the money, but maybe not so much anymore. You know, what I'd like to add here, so if I'm looking now, so now we're moving a little bit outside of the, you know, what you can do as a spend, but what do we need? This is obviously not enough. So, you know, we do need other stakeholders, as you said, of influence. So, so this can be governments, investors, shareholders, academia, subject matter experts, we want them to be part of this mindset, you know, mindset change as well, right? So so when I looked, when I thought about that, first, another thing coming back to our conference that came out, which I thought was very interesting as well, was that when you look at, um, so going back again to the US, and we talked about these smaller companies that, that were not ready, and then of course, based on that, that afterwards, a lot of work was done to prepare them and help them. And you asked the question, well, who was doing that work? Right? How was that being funded? And what you realize is that it was basically philanthropic organizations. So Mozilla Foundation, for example, is basically giving the money um, to people like consultants or others who are then going around and helping. Now, of course, why are they doing it? Because artificial intelligence says, you know, it's a force for the good. I mean, we forget that. We were looking at also all the things which are not right, but it can essentially help with so many big problems of our societies. So, you know, when you look at UN Sustainable Development Goals, that almost every one of them, they can AI can contribute. So there is philanthropic organizations that are saying, okay, we need for this to be done right, and we need we will give money for it, right? But but that is not enough. Okay, so we need more. Then I also, on the other hand, we had just two days ago, September 29th, we had the EU-US Tech and Trade Council meeting. And over there, AI was actually one of the key topics discussed. And one of the things that came out was, well, yes, we need sort of to look at regulatory initiatives, but we need multi-stakeholder initiatives to complement those. But then again, where is the money coming from, right? So we need to also put the money there so that if there are organizations, if there are platforms, if there are consultants, they are actually supported. So here I then come to what governments can do. If I was to then put the hat and say, okay, I am in a position that I can ask governments, I would say, first of all, they they need to really play a role in giving more funding for this particular topic and to help build capacity. So these are the two things that governments can do. So it's allocating budgets for associations, platforms, or, you know, they can establish the centers of excellence as well. So here you can have joint projects with sort of smaller companies and regulators, and that helps to sort of this cross-pollination, which can help a lot. But I, And I think it'll help the, the business, but it also helps a lot the regulators because it helps them to understand the needs. And I understand that another thing, for example, is they can provide support for innovators to navigate the regulatory landscape. So I know that in the UK, I read about this digital regulation in Navigator that they have, which can help basically to connect you with the right regulator who might be able to help you. So this is all very important. And, And it came out also in our conference. And another point that came out from regulators was that, and this was very strong, and I think it came out in three or four panels, which was to say, well, regulators need to help basically smaller companies have a higher share of voice in this topic because there's a concern about the big tech lobby uh, who have a lot of money and therefore you know so how is that i don't have the answer 
But this is all what governments potentially need to look at that needs going forward. There was also about other sectors, you know, because we had basically academia there as well. And my question to them was, well, how can you contribute to this? And from academia, we had some great examples, in fact, from Switzerland. The second federal institute of technology we have here is called APFL. And there, you know, it came out that they're playing a really great role in bringing the private and public sector together. So academia being neutral, the first one is to sort of say they have this innovation park, they have these market opportunity navigators that they have put in place where they're helping the companies and startups to create, you know, to create entrepreneurial capabilities, but they're actually incorporating ethics and regulation of technology as part of those programs. So I thought that was fascinating. And then they also have this joint, you know, so they have this new master's program for engineers, which incorporates ethics in that. So you've got the, you know, your data scientists and your computer software engineers now are actually learning also about ethical implications of the use of the technology, which I think is is a great thing, which we should see more of. This is what academia can do. And I think for a democratic society to have, I would personally say to have engineers really participating in policy debates would be ideal. It would be great. (laughs) That would be wonderful. I mean, I'm just reflecting on what you've said there. And I think many things are actually being done today. It's it's very positive, actually. There is activity out there. There is support. There are forums, as you said, you mentioned the academia, you know, all the various guidance, etc. governments are making available, certainly in the UK. There is, to sort of try and sum up on a positive note, there is help and support and resources out there. And, you know, you're... Feedback on that has been wonderful, actually, very uplifting to understand what they can access. Yeah, and I think absolutely there's so much out there. And I would just want to add to it one more aspect, which is experts. So you do have, and you rightfully say, there is a lot of guidance out there. So if you take, for example, the IEEE, which is, you know, a standard organization, they've actually created a code of conduct for engineers to have ethics by design, which includes sort of transparency, fairness, bias. Now, it's a matter of just going there and saying, what is this? And that you will get it and you can use it. I talk about OECD, but there is a role for experts there as well. So for example, you know, one of the other things that came out, sometimes startups, SMEs and all say, okay, we have all this, this is not right, that is not right. So they're talking about a lot of criticism. And one of our very high level sort of politician made a comment which said, it's nice to have criticism, but I would like you to convert this into concrete amendments. So if I have to convert it into a concrete amendment, I probably will need some lawyers, some associations and some platforms. So to sum up, I think there is a lot of information out there. There's a lot, you know, leaders uh, of startups and SMEs can actually put in place already, which doesn't cost very much. But they'd certainly need to ask also the other parts of society to help them in certain things. But there is a lot that already exists, as you rightfully say, and it's all about being aware of it, be proactively having at top of mind. And then, of course, using platforms. And I would say Reg Horizon, that is our, our you know, raison d'être, basically to say we want to raise awareness of what exists out there. We want to help you to basically build this better future for the technologies and to tap in whatever exists, which is the best, which can be done in a way which hopefully doesn't cost you very much but it's in the benefit of us all as a society. So that would be really my, as you said, something positive to it. 
Yeah, I think in the time we've spent today, we've done our bit for getting the message out there and helping individuals and, and organizations be more informed and aware. And I think that is a great use of our time. So hopefully there's a lot of very useful information um, in our show today that businesses, academia experts, dare I say, governments and regulators can listen to. And our final words is that dialogue has started, but the dialogue will continue. And we need to, and this dialogue, so therefore I'm, I'm so grateful to have this opportunity to, that you gave me to be here to talk about this thing. And it's something that's very close to my heart. And as Reg Horizon, as I said, we are very much involved in this thing. We're working on this. This is our focus and we will be continuing uh, with our global conference or so our AI policy conference. So watch out for the next edition. We are coming up with a publication, uh, which we will have got with, with ETH Zurich, which we will be sending out to all those that participated and wider audience as well, if required. So contact us, please. And, and if you are interested in those takeaways. And the main point is also that we are going to be looking specifically into what are the areas of future development that we need in this and how can we raise awareness and how can we build those bridges. So that is something which is our focus. So wonderful to be able to share, you know, my thoughts on whatever, you know, our first takeaways are, but there's a lot more to happen. So, so stay tuned, um, you know, follow us and hopefully we'll build this future together. <laughs> so all your details are going to be on the show notes. We'll add in the links to the various studies and other information sources and resources that we've talked about. And I suppose that just leaves me to say a huge thank you to you, Aisha, for taking the time um, in our recording, but also all your preparation and your enthusiasm and, and your great talking points. I really, really appreciate it. So um, thank you very much to Aisha. And that ends the show today, I'm afraid. So from me, thank you to everyone who's listening and hope to listen to you again soon and take care and stay safe.